Hello, this is uh, Richard Walker, and this is a podcast, and it's part two of the life story of Annie Chapman. So Annie Chapman was an alcoholic. Alcohol was a legal intoxicant, available and heavily promoted, so Annie was not alone. All five victims of Jack the Ripper enjoyed the temporary relief that alcohol offered. But Annie Chapman was the one most affected by alcohol. However, it must be said that alcohol affected the whole of Victorian society. Through the 19th century, huge technological advances were made in brewing and distilling processes, and these advances, combined with the beginnings of the modern advertising industry, combined to turn alcohol into a mass-produced commodity. And this mass-produced commodity became available to an expanding consumer market. The problems associated with this new relationship with alcohol raised political, moral and medical concerns across Britain. Victorian society became geared towards alcohol consumption. Beer houses, gin palaces, oyster bars, private clubs and public houses competed for custom from dawn till dusk and on into the wee small hours. Concerns about drunkenness drove political campaigns to reform the licensing system in Britain. And in the 1860s, the drink question topped party political agendas. The Liberal Party aligned with the temperance campaigns that sought radical reforms of the licensing system. The Conservative Party sided more with the drink trade, which had mounted a political campaign defending the right to buy and consume alcoholic drinks. The big money was with the families that controlled the highly profitable brewing and distilling companies. It was an unequal contest. An unequal contest made more unequal by the amount of revenue that the sale of alcohol generated for the government, whichever party happened to be running the show. The result was that Annie Chapman could choose from around 20,000 pubs in London. 20,000 is a huge number. Today, there are 3,500 pubs in London and the population is now 9 million. In 1888, it was nearer to 5 million. After Annie's murder, her sister Miriam wrote to the Palmar Gazette. She wrote, Just before I was six years old, my father cut his throat, leaving my mother with five children, three girls older and one child younger than myself. It's a dramatic opening, especially since Miriam's sisters believed that their father was an alcoholic, and it was this that led him to take his own life. So it's no surprise that Miriam went on to say that she and her sisters were so deeply affected that they decided to sign the pledge never to drink alcohol. Miriam went on to say that Annie was unable to commit to a life of abstinence. Miriam wrote, We tried to persuade the one given to drink to give it up. She was married and in a good position. Over and over again, she signed the pledge and tried to keep it. Over and over again, she was tempted and fell. Miriam said that Annie gave birth to eight children, but six died because of Annie's drinking. As Ali Rubenhold says, what becomes obvious from Miriam's letter is that Annie desperately did want to give up drink, but found it impossible. By November 1882, Annie was in a bad way. Her 12-year-old daughter died of meningitis. Annie wasn't present. 
She'd disappeared and was taking refuge in one of the pubs around Windsor. Annie's sisters moved quickly, and they arranged for her to enter the Spelthorne Sanatorium in Feltham on the western edge of London. She agreed to a year-long stay for which John Chapman paid 12 pence a week. After a year in the sanatorium, she returned to her family in Windsor. According to Miriam, she came out a changed woman, a sober wife and mother. It was not to last. A few months after returning home, John had to take his master out in the coach. The weather was bitterly cold, and John took a glass of hot whiskey to fortify himself. According to Miriam, he drank it and came to kiss Annie before departing. The fumes of alcohol were transmitted, and all the cravings came back. According to Miriam, that kiss brought about the death of everything he had fought to achieve. She must have turned over every room for that bottle. It didn't matter in the end whether she found it. She went out, and in less than an hour she was a drunken madwoman. Miriam said Annie never tried again. Annie said it was no use. No one knew the fearful struggle. Unless I can keep out of sight and smell, I can never be free. Francis Barry at this point gave John an ultimatum. Annie must go. John had two children, one of whom was severely disabled. So he did what had to be done. He arranged for Annie to receive a payment of ten shillings a week, which she would receive in London. He no doubt hoped that the companionship of her sisters and her mother would help Annie back on the right track. It was not to be. Miriam said she would always keep out of our way, but she must and would have the drink. Within weeks, Annie escaped the reproachful glances surrounding her at number 29 Montpellier Place. She didn't have to move far from the area where she had grown up to find a cheap room in a neighbourhood where her drinking would not be considered that unusual a habit. The East End of London was not the only place of deprivation in London. In his book The People of the Abyss, Jack London wrote that nowhere in the streets of London may one escape the sight of abject poverty. Five minutes' walk from almost any point will bring one to a slum. Just north of Hyde Park is Notting Hill, which in the 19th century had acquired a solid reputation for the level of deprivation found among its streets. Many of its streets, shown on the poverty map, created by Charles Booth, are coloured black and described as hopelessly degraded. Here Annie found a room where she could enjoy her addiction away from disapproving eyes. For Annie, her move to Notting Hill was her first step down, not into Alice's rabbit hole, but into Jack London's abyss. Well, we leave it there. But join me for my next podcast when we look at the third stage in the life and times of Annie Chapman. This is Richard Walker saying, well, thank you very much for listening, and I do hope that I might get to meet you maybe on one of my Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel walks. Till then, thank you, and bye-bye.